This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Tonight is a particular, it's a special one we do about once every six months, but I'll get into that here in a moment. Um, we do our studies in the formal lecture style. So it's more of a Bible lecture, or Bible teaching. So it is one way. And if there's questions, I always encourage people to write them down, bring them to me after, and then I can kind of go over them on a one-on-one basis unless there's enough time at the end of a Bible study, which we haven't really done. We haven't really built in Q&A time before, but it's something I've considered, certainly something that's not off the table. It's something we can certainly do, but that's how we do them here. Now, there's a couple different ways to conduct Bible studies. There are about three different ways, and I'm getting ahead of myself because I actually mentioned that in tonight's study. There are scriptural studies, and there are topical studies, and then there's the, uh, the group discussion. Typically, what we do here is I prefer to do scriptural studies, and that's teaching book by book. We teach the whole document. We teach the whole uh, either book or letter from the Bible as it is because that maintains the integrity of the context and uh, with the, the intent of the message and all of that. You can, get, you can retain a little bit better control, I think, of the five major parts of biblical study that way. There are also topical studies, which are kind of what we've been doing in School of Virtue classes, where you take a topic, and then you teach what the Bible says about that topic, and you're able to pull from Old Testament, New Testament, time all together, and then you shine a light on an entire subject that way. Those are also good. We don't do a lot of those, but we do them sometimes, and there's certainly nothing wrong with them. The group discussion study, I really try to stay away from, because they're always well-intentioned, but they almost always descend into casual discussions on everybody's private interpretation. And then everybody walks away wondering, well, then what in the world is the truth? <laughs> well, to me, this means this, and to me, this means that. Well, and then to another brother, it means something completely different. Okay, well, that's great, but what's, what's, which is the way in which, in which we should walk? So we do usually scriptural studies, occasionally topical studies, and tonight will actually be a topical study, and we don't really ever go into the realm of the, the group discussion, but questions are encouraged. We only ask that for the sake of continuity, you hold them for the end or write them down, bring them, bring them around afterwards, and then we can answer them to the best of our ability. If so there's something you don't quite hear or it's kind of a great big question mark and doesn't make any sense, I don't mind a question, as long as it's all in order and it doesn't get crazy. Now, we've been in Matthew, we've been in Red Letter Studies, but as I mentioned, about every six months or so, and it's not right on the nose, it isn't really marked on the calendar, although I think I did mark it on the calendar for this October, okay? About every six months or so, I try to teach the same topical study on the Bible and how to read it. Because while this might seem like a no-brainer for a lot of people, it isn't. And even a lot of people who are exposed to the Bible, they're never really explained what the Bible is. 
They're just, you know, given catchphrases. Oh, well, it's the word of God. Okay, that's great. It's the word of God. But can you give me a little bit more to go on? You know, how is it the word of God? How is it structured? Who wrote it? How old is it? How am I supposed to read it? Do I start at the beginning? Do I start at the end? Do I shoot somewhere in the middle? Do I read it according to what I see it opened randomly to on the communion altar? What is it? And it, and nobody wants to ask those questions hardly because they don't want to, they don't want to be perceived as being ignorant or dumb or stupid. And really it's not an ignorant question. It's certainly not a dumb or a stupid question. Now if you've been raised in the faith, well, you may well know a lot of this that we're going to talk about tonight. But if you were raised in the faith, you may very well not know any of it because it may simply never have been taught. This is one of those things that, at least in my opinion and in my book, this is a, this is a no, it's, it's a no-brainer subject that should be taught to everyone, whether it's in Sunday school, children's church, in an adult Bible study, or an adult Sunday school, or whatever the case may be. It's something that ought to be taught and so few people teach it. And so believers just go through their lives not really knowing how it's supposed to be looked at, how it was put together, how it should be studied. It's a very big deal. And so about every six months, I break out this study because it's my hope that this will fill in some of those gaps in our understanding and answer some of those unasked questions about the Word and how to read it. The Word and how to read it is very important. So we're going to go ahead and begin and then be at the will of the Lord. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off in Matthew. I believe we're in chapter 9, the last few verses of chapter 9. But tonight, it's the Bible and how to read it. Now, just a, a, a few statements really quick, observations. That the study of the Bible is the highest form of theology that a person can engage in. No kidding. I really believe that. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a uh, seminarian or a seminary student or an attendee at a Bible college or something like that. There is no higher study for the human mind and the human heart, because it involves them both, than the Word of God itself, the Holy Bible. It's the highest form of theology that can be engaged in, and it's capable of being engaged in by anyone at all. If you're capable of reading, if you are literate, if you're even 10th grade, 9th grade, 6th grade literate, you can read the Word of God, and you can even read it in the King James English. That's always the one that I promote. I'm not saying you're sinning if you're reading another version, but I will tell you very plainly, and you know how where we stand on the Word of God here, I don't trust any of them except the King James, not in the English language anyway. There are good versions in Spanish, I've heard. There are good versions in other languages that have to be by the grace of God. But where the English language is involved, I don't trust anything outside of King James. I just don't. I know enough about where it comes from, what all went into its, its, um, its translations, its safety checks and balances, so to speak, as far as efficacy and accuracy and all of that. The King James is the way to go. You might say, well, I don't like all the these and the thous and the this and the that. But the these and the thous, you get quite used to. They're not difficult. They're not. You get used to reading them, and then your brain just picks them up, and it just reads right along with them, and it makes perfect sense. And you'll find, just as a quick by the way here, King James English, you read enough of that, it'll improve your own regular English. It really will. 
It'll kind of bring you out of the hood or out of the white, out of white trash land or wherever it is that you're from, culturally speaking. And I'm not being mean. I'm not throwing stones. We all come from all manner of walks of life. But a consistent reading of the Word of God in the King James English, it'll actually improve your own syntax. And then people will be able to understand you a little better. Just saying, non-believers have been converted by its study. And Christians are both edified and distinctly empowered by it to impress upon you the importance of reading the Word of God and letting it sink down and find, like we were preaching on this Sunday morning, this about the sower that went forth to sow seed. Well, the Word of God is seed from end to end. It is seed from end to end. And when you read it, it finds a lodging place in your mind first. And right on the heels of that, if you let it, it finds a lodging place in your heart. This is the inspired Word of God and nothing else is. That might sound narrow-minded. That might sound exclusivist. I don't care. It's true. The Quran is not the Word of God. The Book of Mormon is not the Word of God. Even in, in Quite a few corrupt translations that are out there are not the Word of God. They really are not. You want something that is as close to the original as you can get? You'd be best off with the original, but does anybody in here speak enough Greek, Hebrew, Latin? Well, not Latin, but Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic? Anybody fluent in any of those languages? Me neither. So we got to do the best with what we have. A good, reliable English translation. You don't have to know Latin. You don't have to know Greek. It helps in some areas. It helps clarify certain things, but you don't have to be a linguist. Anybody who professes Christ... And this really kind of drives the point home. And it might, might sound a little bit harsh, but we don't mean it to be harsh. Anyone who professes Christ, who is capable of reading, or who is capable of understanding even the spoken word, okay, and does not regularly engage in its study, you could say of such a person that it could be said, and I'll quote you from Isaiah 5 and 12, they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. That's right out of Isaiah. He's not saying that. I have taken it out of its context, but you could say that of someone who is capable of reading, who names the name of Christ, but does not engage in the regular study of the word of God. You could say of them that they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. And I'll tell you why that I say that, okay? The word of God is precious beyond words. It really is. And the reason I say that is because we've all grown up in literacy. We've grown up in the, a modern, developed, first world nation where universe, uh, or where literacy is practically, though not entirely, universal. There's some illiteracy still in the United States. There's people that can't read. There's people that slip through the cracks. I understand all that. And so that's why I'm making this clarification. But even if you can't read, you can understand the, the spoken English language. And if you can, I can tell you exactly where to go and, and how much it costs. You can get it on your smartphones. It is the highest quality narration of the Bible that's on the market, in my humble opinion. Just saying, if you have any questions about that, get with me after the Bible study, I'll tell you. But it's critical. You've got to know this because the English language translation of the Bible as we have it that thing came at a cost of blood because it was a very tightly controlled thing for a very long time. And it wasn't always readily available. 
and even in well developed nations of four and five hundred years years ago, you couldn't just pop pop over to the Barnes and Noble and buy yourself a Bible off the rack of twenty seven different translations of the Bible, which caused most people confusion because they don't know where to begin or even what to get. The Word of God is precious, and it informs, and it empowers, and it is worth more than we realize many times. And it came at a it came at a very high cost. It came at a very high cost, and that, that's a lesson in church history and the Reformation and things like that, which we won't get into tonight. Tonight we're just talking about the Word itself. We already talked about different kinds of Bible studies, so we can skip past that, and we can move. Well, let's just get right into the guts of it. It's viewed by many nowadays as just one of many religious books of more or less equal value. But that's not the case. All right, You could put a bunch of religious books on a shelf, but one of them is going to stand out above all of them. That's always going to be the Word of God. And we already mentioned other books are not the Word of God. The Word of God is the Word of God. And backing that up, and it might sound self-serving, but backing that up, we can take right out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he says... All scripture. Now that's pretty, that's, that's a pretty broad focus, isn't it? But it's all inclusive. All scripture. All right. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So right there in the first half of that verse, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That tells you the origin of the word of God. All scripture, the whole thing, the whole thing, not just the Old Testament, certainly not just the New Testament. Yes, we live in the New Testament. We're New Testament believers because of the period of time that we live in. But the whole thing is the inspired word of God and all of it Absolutely every bit of it is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine. That means teaching. Teaching specifically of truth as opposed to lies or falsehood. It's also profitable for reproof and for correction. Those two kind of go hand in hand. Reproof is a little bit more personal, stings a little bit more. But it's not intended to wound or to offend. It's intended to keep us on the straight and the narrow path. Because the devil is always fighting against the truth, isn't he? The truth is always under attack. It's always under assault. And that's why we as believers, we want to keep our nose in the book. I'm not saying you have to read it three hours a day, although that'd be a blessing if you have that kind of a time luxury. But to be in it frequently, that's the point. And the whole point of being in it frequently is to get it into our heads so that it can then go into our hearts and then to keep it refreshed in our minds. That's the whole point of it. David said in the Psalms, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Well, that's a flashlight on a dark path, isn't it? That shows you where you're going so you're not tripping and tripping and stumbling over every jag in the sidewalk or tree root or whatever is in your way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That is the word of God to us. Okay, all right, so we've covered that. Well, what exactly is the Bible then? Well, a couple of things that it isn't. It isn't a book of poetry. Although there is some poetry in it. There are some books in the Bible that are classified as poetical books like the Psalms and to an extent Job, certainly the Song of Solomon. It is not a book of suggestions and it's not a book of advice. 
It's more than a book of guidelines for living a good and moral life. Because when you look at it as just that, then you look at it, you kind of take a passive approach to the Bible and you think, oh, well, it'd be good if I did that, but eh, I don't think I want to. Well, the Bible tells us that if a person knows to do good and doeth it not, then to him it is sin. Ooh, that kind of, that focuses the lens pretty clearly, doesn't it? To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So if a person, all right, now, there's a few different ways that we could expound on that, but it's actually pretty clear. The language is pretty clear, isn't it? So if you know that something is right, if you know from the word of God, from the word of God, you know that something is right, is true, is expected of us by God because we are his children. And you decide, I'm just not going to do that. Is your conscience clean anymore? It isn't. You've actually violated it because you knew better. Because it's something that you knew better. And that ties right into another verse which tells us, makes it very clear there in the, uh, in the New Testament. If I build again those things which once I've destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Life in Christ is one way. And that's forward. You can't really regress. You can't really regress. When you start regressing and going back into old ways of living or old habits or old practices, however mundane they are, you go in the wrong direction. You might be on the same road, but you're not headed, you're not headed towards the kingdom. We want to take it as from the mouth of God himself. And when we do that, there's a few things that come along with that. First of all, God honors it. God honors his word. And God blesses the intent of the heart. When we intend in our hearts to embrace the word, let it inform our lives and begin to shape our lives according to his spirit and his word. Both of them, they work together. They never contradict each other, period. You can stand on that. If you were a betting man, you could put money on it. But Christians don't really, we don't really gamble. It's just not, it's just not good policy. The Bible is the inspired word of God. It is God's revelation to man concerning both himself and his divine will and his expectations for the human race. And that might sound a little authoritarian, but you got to remember, God has every right to, doesn't he? God made us. The Bible's not a single unified book. That's the other thing. And that's, that's another thing that doesn't really get explained to a lot of people. It's not a single unified volume. It doesn't have a single author. No one guy sat down at his IBM Selectric or at his junky old Microsoft Windows computer and just wrote the whole thing out. I think I'm going to write a book of religion and then just put this out into the public and shape the human race and all of Western morality with it. That's not how it came to pass. The Bible is a composite work of 66 separate inspired volumes of text. Okay? And it's everything from books to letters to, well, Psalms and Proverbs. Those have been collected into individual volumes themselves. A book of Psalms, which are songs in a manner of speaking. They were sung a different way and were written in a, in a, a Jewish style of poetry, which is completely different from anything in the Western world. They weren't really big on rhyming. They framed their poetry on, on other standards. So, uh, Proverbs, com uh, compilations, if you will, or collections of Proverbs, not all written by the same person. Not all of them were written by Solomon. And so there are books. There are books of law. There are books of history. 
There are books of Proverbs and Psalms. There are letters from the apostles to the various churches there in the New Testament. There are letters from the apostles to individual people in the New Testament. There are also gospel accounts, the four different gospel accounts, and we'll get more into the details of it here in just a moment. But that's what it is. Well, how did it all come to pass? How did they bind them all together? How did they know what was inspired and what wasn't inspired? Because, frankly, there are a lot of uninspired books out there that are just as old. They're just as old. And not, not everything that came out of the, the, out of the caves there in the Dead Sea was an inspired biblical work. The Gospel of Thomas, not inspired. And if you've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you'll know that. You pick up some of these wonky donk books that, uh, that, uh, regain popularity every 20, 30 years or so and fly off the shelves at the bookstore and say, Gospel of, and it's something like Thomas, Judas, Bill, whatever the case may be. Those are not inspired texts. And you'll know that when you open it up and you actually look at them, you actually try to read those things. They will read like bad Scientology. I mean, really weird, weird stuff. And it, it doesn't have the same spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is not attendant to those texts because He did not inspire those texts. I'm very clear about that because, again... The truth is always under attack. The truth is always under attack. And as a society, we're in love with novelty. And so somebody pops out some book and claims that it's 2,000 years old and it was inspired of God, but it's not in here. I'm not saying don't read it. I'm just saying be careful, please, because almost all of that junk is exactly that. It's junk. It's junk. And I can speak from some experience. I've looked at some of it and it's awful. It doesn't ring true. It doesn't, it doesn't line up with the Word of God. I mean, when you're reading a book that claims to, alright, since I've opened that can, okay, when you're reading a book that claims to be a gospel inspired by God, and then you're reading in there where they've plopped Peter in some impossible situation, and they have Peter saying things like, Tell the women to keep silent because it's not fitting that they should speak or inherit the kingdom of heaven. What? That doesn't line up with the word of God. That doesn't line up with the word of God. And then they put words in Jesus' mouth and they have Jesus saying, uh, hold on, Peter, pray that the women be turned into men so that they can be saved. That's, that's not. There's, there's nothing in the Bible that backs up anything like that at all. Because in Christ, there's neither bond nor free. In Christ, is neither male nor is neither woman or man. In Christ, is neither uh, rich nor poor. In Christ, all such distinctions are torn down. Now, it doesn't mean that we go to having surgery and try to swap genders or things like that. That's a myth anyway. That's a whole different subject. But what it, the point there is that there's no, there's no such distinctions in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm. So when you know the Word of God, when you read and study the Word of God, you, you therefore know what the true Word is, then you're a whole lot better equipped to identify a counterfeit when you encounter it. Okay? Let's move on. 66 books. And you can divide them up. You can categorize them a number of different ways. And it's good to understand that so you know exactly what you're reading, when it was written, and how it applies to your life. Because it all boils down to how it applies to your life, right? That's the whole reason that we have it. It's not just a big book of history that's good to know. We want to know how it shapes the way we should live. And the reason that's important to know is, if you don't understand it, contextually, if you don't understand it historically, then you might find yourself trying to, you know, well, I read in the Bible that we're not supposed to eat pork. 
So that's a sin if I ate bacon. Well, I hope not. But over in the Old Testament under the law of Moses, you encounter such prohibitions because they were part of the law. Well, that's why we're having this Bible study tonight. So you understand the difference of what's for us, what's not for us, how it applies or doesn't it apply. And a lot of people use that to try to justify things that are wrong. But we want to err on the side of caution, sure. But we don't want to necessarily bind ourselves under commandments that were fulfilled in Christ and he doesn't expect us to live up to today. For example, that whole prohibition against pork. You also can't eat shellfish. If you're a Jew under the law, no shrimp for you. No lobster either. They were unclean animals. It's not just bacon. But we're not Jews under the law. And so you don't have to worry about that. We're kind of covering this at a high level, I know. The volumes vary from long to short. They contain all manner of things from commandments, laws, historical accounts, genealogies. You're going to find a few construction plans in here. No kidding. For things like the Ark of the Covenant and for things like, well, Noah's Ark. You, uh, for things like uh, the Temple of Solomon. You're going to find some pretty detailed construction accounts. Prophecies. Psalms, Proverbs, numerous letters, and so on. You can divide it up like so. Old Testament, New Testament. What's the difference between the two? Old Testament is everything before Christ was born. Everything before Christ was born. Old Testament. And that's Genesis all the way through to the end of a book named Malachi. Malachi was one of the minor prophets. New Testament is the four Gospels and everything after that. The four Gospels and everything after that. New Testament. Why are they called that? That's a pretty detailed study for another day. But generally speaking, a testament is a, a final statement or a final wish or what have you. It's more than that, but it, you can basically describe it as a final statement from someone who has died or is going to die. Well, Jesus died, didn't he? Therefore, his testament is the New Testament. And it contains everything, all of the New Testament promises and all of that that are for the New Testament believer. So it's divided by the advent of Christ. Although it's much more involved than that. The contents of the, of the Bible you can break up a bunch of different ways. Now in the Old Testament, which is much larger than the New Testament, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make it more valid. All right, they're all equally valid. The Old Testament contains the law. And whenever we refer to the law, we're talking about the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, and then the next four after that. And then it has historical books, prophetical books, and poetical books. Those are just categories, okay? What are the prophetical books? Those are books of prophecy. And there you can break that up into major prophets and minor prophets. And that's more of the detail than we want to get into tonight. The books of prophecy were written by either the prophets themselves or men that were scribes that were in their employ or were their companions or whatever the case may be. Those are books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Hosea, Micah, Joel, and so forth, all the way through. And there are quite a few of them. Now, a lot of those prophecies that are in the prophetical books were prophecies that were fulfilled during the times of the Jews. Some of them were short-term prophecies. Some of them were long-term prophecies. 
Some of those prophecies, particularly in Isaiah, have yet to be fulfilled, but they are on their way. They are well on their way. So those were the, those are the prophetical books. Well, how do those apply to us? Well, it's good to know prophecy. It's good to know prophecy so you know what has come to pass that God said was going to come to pass and what's still on its way. One reason it's good to know prophecy, especially future prophecy that's unfulfilled, is so that you know the truth concerning those prophecies and some weirdo knocking on your door trying to tell you that the kingdom of God is coming next week and that you need to give all of your money and your assets to their cult tomorrow or you're going to go to hell, you'll know that they're feeding you a line. You know what I'm talking about? Because there's always people trying to scare you into something other than the word of God. And you'll even notice around here there's not a whole lot of hellfire and brimstone preaching. There's place for that and time for that, but fear is a lousy long-term motivator. I'd much rather that we all love God because that's the great commandment, isn't it? So it contains a lot of history as well. The Old Testament contains a lot of history, all the way from the creation of the universe, the creation of the human race. And yes, we were created. We didn't come swinging down from trees or crawling up out of the goop. All right, all of that is just as much of a false religion as any other false religion that's out of there because they have no proof. Neither will they find it. Anyway, history from the creation of the universe, the creation of the world, the human race, the creation of all of uh, all life on earth for that matter, all the way from that through the fall of man, through the first epic of human history from the fall of man all the way to the flood of Noah. And if you've never read about that, there was a flood. It wiped out the human race except for eight people. Yes, eight people. I'll let you draw your own conclusions and implications what that means, but it is a historical fact. It is a matter of historical record. And it continues on. The history continues on from the period after the flood. Those who survived the dispersal of the nations, where all of the different human languages came from. And much of that history is covered all the way back there in Genesis. And it's literal. And it's true. And you can bank on it. It doesn't matter what National Geographic says or the Discovery Channel or whoever else. It really doesn't matter. We have the true account. How much of it is metaphorical? Some people can argue that and maybe make some good cases. But the best position for the Christian to have is to take it at face value because that's how it was given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Well, what about dinosaurs? What about them? If they were real, God made them. End of story. Well, when did they live? We don't really know. And it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter, especially where a Christian's relationship with God is concerned. But I guarantee you, when you dig around in those skeletons, well, if you were allowed to dig around in those skeletons in those museums, fewer than a third of those bones are even real. The vast majority of those constructs that you see are fabrications based on pure and often outrageous conjecture on the part of paleontologists and other um, scientists of that particular field of discipline. So why let it stress your soul? Why let it rack your brains? Well, what about the cavemen? Even fewer of those bones are real. But there's an answer to be known. And if it remains a mystery until we're safely with God in the kingdom, so be it. 
There's a reason why he doesn't tell us a whole lot about those things. There's a reason why very, very little of the earth's ancient history is revealed in the word. There's a reason. Well, what's the reason? I don't really know. See that? That's called honesty. I'm not going to make something up. So history, all the way forward to the time of Christ, to the formation of the nation of Israel, their delivery out of bondage to Egypt, their period as a nation, their period as a kingdom, and to their fall, their captivity, their return, and then all the way till the coming of Christ. And then the New Testament has a little bit of history in it too. We have the four Gospels, which are four historical accounts written by four different men of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is not exhaustive. They are not exhaustive. There's very little of Jesus' childhood that is known. That's just fine. Again, there's reasons why we only know what we know. So anybody popping out with a book on the mysterious travelings of Jesus when he was 14 years old into India has written a fiction. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Because he didn't go to India when he was 14. We don't know if he ever went to India at all. And people, people, there are people that try to grab onto those things that are not spelled out in the Word of God, and then they try to build a cult off of those things because they're not spelled out in the Word of God. Watch yourself. Be discerning. Judge other books by the Bible. Don't put anything on the same level as the Bible. So it contains a lot of history, contains a lot of instruction. The book of Acts is a book of history. That's in the New Testament. Follows right on the heels of the, of the, uh, of the Gospels. And it contains the history of the ancient church or of the very early church, the very beginnings, our roots, our origins in the faith are found back there in the book of Acts. That's a good book to crack open and read. And so, all right, well, how, how does this help me right now, preacher? I mean, you're telling me all this stuff. Where do I start? You can start in Genesis if you want at the beginning and, and crawl and call, uh, troll or crawl forward through the whole thing. And I encourage people to do that. But if you're new in the faith, don't do that. If you're new to the faith, don't go over to Genesis and start reading in there. Okay? Because it's good. It's right. Feel free to go to it when you want. But start in a place that is more relevant to where you're living right now. I always encourage new believers, either new believers or people who have newly returned to the faith from, you know, from not being in the faith. Let's just put it that way. I always encourage them. Go to John. Start in the gospel according to John. Matthew, Mark, and John, those three gospel accounts are all eyewitness accounts. Those men were there. They were with Jesus. They wrote down what they saw and what they heard. Well, did they compare notes? I don't really know if they did or not. But we do know that those accounts are inspired and rock solid and dependable. You can stand on them. Luke is likewise rock solid and dependable. You can stand on it. But Luke himself was not an eyewitness. He was not there. He compiled his gospel account based on the accounts of others. And so his account is extremely detailed, just as valid, worth basing your life on. You can count on it. But just to give you a little bit of background, those four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, were eyewitness, well, they were witnesses. And then Luke, who compiled his after the fact. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. The book of Acts was part two of the gospel according to Luke. So there you have that. So the four gospels in the book of Acts, there's your New Testament history. It shows you the life of Christ, where we came from effectively as far as the faith is concerned. And then it shows you the book of Acts when the church first 
came into existence there on the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit of God came in like a mighty rushing wind into that prayer meeting. Read about it. Read about it. So that's not for us today. You know not whereof you speak. Because I'm a witness of that. And if you tell me otherwise, you come too late. Because I've been there. Book of Acts, the early church. And quite a lot that happened in those pages. How Peter stood up and preached and 5,000 people got saved at once in one church service. 5,000 souls accepted Christ. And that, has, that, that sort of thing happened more than once back there in the book of Acts. You also find some terrifying things in the book of Acts. Don't let that deter you. All right, you read about a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira and how they lied to God and God struck them dead. You thought that that was just an Old Testament thing. Oh no, oh no. Now I'm not saying God's going to kill you if you lie, but I'm not going to encourage you to try that. Book of Acts. And then afterwards, the majority of New Testament texts are letters written by the, written by the apostles to churches and to believers within the churches or to groups of believers scattered abroad as with the book of Hebrews and the book of James. And then there's this one book right at the tail end of the whole thing called the Revelation. That's like the nuclear bomb of Scripture. It is that powerful. Yes, boom. But I don't say that to make it sound spooky or intimidating. The Revelation is not a book to be feared. It's a book to be embraced just like any other book of the Bible. But it's not one that I encourage a new believer to run right to because there's a lot of stuff in it that you're just not going to understand without an understanding of other books of the Bible. You need to know Isaiah. You need to know Daniel. And you need to know parts of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, the chapter, I believe, is round about in the 20s. I want to say 23. You need to have a good, solid understanding of some of the Old Testament prophets and their prophecies and some of the stuff there from the gospel, some prophecies that Jesus gave us in order to really unlock and untie some of the mysteries that are there in the Revelation. But ultimately, the Revelation is there to be known and to be understood because it spells out for every one of us in here that name the name of Christ, it spells out our future hope in God. The things that we have coming to us when this life is over with, you find a lot of that stuff spelled out in the Revelation. Some of it in Isaiah. You want to talk about a new heavens and a new earth? You say, well, I thought I was going to live in heaven forever. Oh, no. Who told you that? Grandma? Your uncle who was a deacon in the Baptist church, maybe? I'm not knocking Baptists. It's just always where I always go to automatically when I'm pulling stuff out like that. Okay? Baptists can make really good people. But who told you that? Who told you that? Mankind was made to live on the earth forever. Well, isn't the world going to end? Well, yeah, and then he's going to make a new one. He talks about that over in the Revelation. He talks about that back in Isaiah. He talks about a new heaven and a new earth. He talks about a, a, a place we're going to live, right? It's not going to be like it is now, I'll tell you that. It's going to be so fundamentally different that imagination, imagination even fails. But it's good to know these things so you know one, so you know what your hopes are in Christ, your heritage, your birthright as a born-again Christian, the things that have been promised to you as the children of God. And so you'll know when someone's trying to sell you 
something that isn't true. When you step outside your door, you come home from work, and there's a nice colorful flyer hanging on your hanging on your doorknob from you fill in the blank, some group somewhere, saying, We're having a, rev- a revelation seminar. Learn about the beast and the 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 ten horns and the twenty-seven eyes and the crown and the the false prophet and the whore that rides the beast out of Babylon and all that other stuff. And I know I chewed that up, chewed it up kind of on purpose. Just don't. Read it for yourself. When the Lord wills, we'll probably have some Bible studies in the book of the Revelation. But we don't rush there. So how do I read the Bible? There are a lot of bad ways to read it. There, there are a lot of bad ways to read it. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of those just so you know what I'm talking about. There's the hit and miss method. Hit and miss. You know what that is? Like whatever, whenever I get around to it, maybe sometimes. That method. Hit and miss. It's a time-honored method of lazy readers. It's whatever, whenever you get to it. And then there's the Hail Mary method. That's one that I was fond of when I was a lot younger. The Hail Mary method is, uh, it's time to read my Bible today and just open it up to whatever random thing opens up. Open thy doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour thy cedars. Wow, that was cool. I have no idea what that means, but I got my Bible reading in today. That's the Hail Mary method. I don't really recommend that. I don't recommend that. And then, of course, there's the hardcore method, which is a book a day every day. And some people have done that. But that's very hardcore. And the problem with that method is that you're not really going to retain a whole lot of what you're reading. If it's a short book, you're, you're good to go. If you're trying to cram Isaiah into your head in one day, you're not going to remember a thing from it. You're not going to remember a thing from it. So among the best methods, among the best methods what I call the one-track mind. That's, you pick one book, you read the book. You pick another book, you read the other book. You say, all right, I'm going to read Isaiah. And then you read all of Isaiah. Takes you a few weeks, that's fine. Takes you a few days, that's fine. Probably only take you a few days if you're focused, okay? And you say, all right, now I'm going to read the letter of Jude. And you read the letter of Jude. All right, I'm going to read the the Gospel of Matthew. You go read the Gospel of Matthew. You read it, you treat each document with the respect that it deserves, You know, pick a book, read the book, read that whole book, then move on to another book. That's one of the best methods. I'm not saying it's the only good method, but it is one of the best methods. And then repeat until you clear the entire Bible that way. And that keeps you from mixing your stuff up. It keeps you from getting confused and blending passages from Old Testament into New Testament and and then not knowing what you're exactly supposed to believe. And well, what else is there? There's other methods like the well-balanced diet. It's like one chapter or two chapters out of a book of the Old Testament and one chapter or two chapters out of the book of the New Testament every day. That's a pretty good method too. It's very methodical. It's a good habit to form. It'll work for you if you work it. And then chronological is another method. And you find there, you can get out, you can get out on the internet and in nothing flat, you can find a list of the books of the Bible in chronological order because they're not in chronological order in the Bible. All right, they've been compiled more categorically than they have been chronologically. But sometimes you just want to read things the way that it progressed through history. You can do that as well. I'm a big fan of the one-track mind. I'm a big fan of that. That's my personal preference. It works good for me. But avoid the bad methods. However you read the Bible, avoid the bad methods. Don't be a Hail Mary Bible reader. All right, I'm going to read here. That's just not good. You don't have any context when you do it that way. It doesn't make sense when you do it that way. It's just not good. Hit and miss, not good. 
Choose one of these better ways, which we've described. We have five parts to biblical study. We'll share that another time. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.